Please leave your message. Hey guys, Alex here. With all the coronavirus stuff going on right now, I'm, you know, a little confused about when I should get tested and if I should get tested or even how. I mean, I go and I want to see my parents every week. I help them out with groceries and things like that, but how do I know it's still safe to do that? There's just so much mixed information out there, and I don't know how to sit through it all. Thanks. This is Get It Up with your hosts. I'm Dr. Miles Spar, men's health expert. I'm Dr. Alex Pastashak, and I'm a dick doc. I'm Jason. I know what you know, nothing about men's health. I'm going to get the answers. Dr. Spar, Dr. Pastashak, how are you? Good. How you doing, Jason? Hey, Jason. Hi. We're talking today about COVID and COVID testing. We have a lot of information we need to share pretty quickly uh, because I think a lot of people are very concerned about the fact that they don't fully appreciate or understand how to parse the differences in the media stories that are coming out on a hourly basis about what is happening with the spread and the contagion of this virus and how it affects them and how quarantine or social distancing is keeping them safe. And they may not fully appreciate exactly why some people are getting extra sick and other people may have it and have no symptoms. Um, There's a lot of questioning around why testing is not broadly available and what kind of testing when it is available they should get. And then I think there's a a pretty decent question about how to respond when you are testing uh, somebody and you do find out that you're positive or potentially that you have uh, an antibody in you because there's a lot of talk now about antibody testing. So there's just a lot of confusion. So can we break it down and make this a lot simpler for everybody? So, you know, we talked about this virus in one of the prior episodes, but and we talked about how it's different from the flu virus, and that's really important when understanding clinically. But when you're talking about testing and why testing is so important, it's also key to understand that this SARS virus is different from other even related viruses like the big SARS outbreak we heard about in 2003. That virus caused bad symptoms quickly. So if somebody had it, they knew they had it quickly, they got medical attention, they were taken away from other people, so they couldn't spread it as much. With this SARS virus, which we know is SARS-CoV-2 because it's a second big SARS virus that we know about, it actually has a long degree of asymptomatic individuals who don't even know they have it, and there's a long period of time before people who do get symptoms have the virus and can spread the virus before they get symptoms. And so that's why this virus can be spread so easily because it's spread by people who don't even know they have it yet and why it's so important that testing is available so people know when they need to take themselves out of society and really strictly isolate to minimize the spread. And, and I think one other good point to make here is that, you know, compared to the flu virus, this SARS virus is actually more infectious, meaning on average, if you infect, say, with the flu, 1.5 other individuals that you walk by, quote unquote, with this virus, that number is at least up to 2.5. So not only is it something that may sit in us undetected because we don't have symptoms, but that whole time you can be infectious and you're more infectious than you are, say, with the common flu. Let's be clear again. What are the specific symptoms that people recognize as the coronavirus or COVID versus, say, uh, a cold or a flu? So so with any emerging 
pandemic or epidemic or outbreak as we get smaller and smaller, that's the direction we want to go with this. Um, there are new symptoms that keep popping up uh, all the time. And, you know, Dr. Spar fill in the gaps for me, but this all started with a core set of symptoms of fever, dry cough, and shortness of breath when things were getting worse but now has expanded to include GI upset. It's expanded to include loss of taste and smell and a number of other symptoms that are coming online now. Um, in fact, there, there are articles out there talking about how uh, tracking social media is helping to identify new symptoms because people in certain areas are complaining of specific symptoms and they, they may or may not have this virus. Yeah, exactly. And the funny thing about this virus as well is many people will get some mild symptoms and then some of them, it'll stay mild. Many of them, though, feel like they're getting better after a few days, but then one or two days into feeling better, it suddenly comes back at them much stronger. And that's when they start to get really sick and get the chest tightness and the shortness of breath. And that's when it's important to seek medical attention. And it, and it's frustrating. You know, it, I've been talking to my friends from around the country and, you know, I mean, COVID is on the mind, right? But, you know, I've had a number of friends who have said, well, you know, I've had this kind of symptom or that kind of symptom. And, you know, gosh, is it COVID? But, you know, I can't get tested. And, you know, I've read in the papers that, you know, there have been patients who have been, you know, tested positive for, say, something like strep, but who had very clear, quote unquote, COVID symptoms, but couldn't get tested and confirmed for COVID because there's just not enough testing around. So it's so that that's that's one of the most frustrating points here is that we don't really understand the symptomology of this thing because we don't we can't confirm across the entire population who has it and who doesn't. Exactly. It's thought that anywhere from 10 to 100 times the number of people that have identified as having it actually do have it. So who should get tested? How do you decide as a First of all, I don't even know where I would go to get tested. But before we get to that, how how do you decide that you need to get tested? I think, number one, anybody who's having any of the symptoms that we talked about, and they're pretty variable. It could just be mild achiness. It could be mild fatigue. It could be feeling some sort of dry cough. But it's important to know if you have it so that you are very, very good about isolating yourself. One of the key First steps of isolating a virus and minimizing the spread, what's called containment, is identifying who has it. That's like epidemiology 101. And to take it a step further, Dr. Spar, you know, I mean, if you have any concern that you've been exposed or you know that you've been exposed, and this is part of, you know, the epidemiological hunt for contacts of those who've been exposed, you know, then those folks need to be tested as well. And, and you know, quite frankly, with regards to what we're hearing in the population with 25% or potentially more of people with the virus being asymptomatic, I mean, there, it raises the point that, you know, that the more people you test and, you know, I, and I would go so far as to say maybe, you know, the whole population should be tested given everything that's going on, the more you're going to really understand and be able to contain the spread of this virus. And the reason it's especially important that as many people as possible get tested is so that we can start to get back to opening up society, opening up our economy, getting back to work. If we know who has it and who doesn't, that enables us to know, for example, if somebody is at higher risk, then they should only be around people who have tested negative. If you want to go visit somebody who's older or somebody who has diabetes, make sure they're okay. The only way you can safely do that is if you get tested and find out you do not have it. 
And unless you can get tested, then you're leaving all those people who are very vulnerable already from having high-risk conditions to being more vulnerable because they can't get the care they need. They can't get the social interactions they need. They can't get family members to come by because those family members can't get tested to make sure, hey, I'm negative. I can go take care of grandma. I can go visit this person. I can go make sure they have their medications and their environment is clean. Yeah. And in some cases, you need a test to even walk in the door, I think. In assisted living facilities and nursing homes and hospitals, you you, you won't even get in the door if, if there's a risk that you've been exposed. Yeah. So, you know, I think I think let's take a minute and talk uh, talk some more about the testing, because, you know, th- this is a key point. And, you know, when we talk kind of in the common language about testing, you know, we uh, we take for granted that a test is going to be what we call sensitive and specific. And that's the ability of the test to pick something up and then for that something to be what it is looking for. And so in this case, you know, the sensitivity would be how accurately can the test pick up some readout and then how accurate is that readout relative to COVID? Like, is it COVID that the test is picking up? And so the ideal test is going to be 100% sensitive and 100% specific. Well, we're never going to get there, but we need to get as close to that as possible. And, you know, now there are actually a number of good tests out there, you know, that get us close and that give us good testing. We just need to be able to give the appropriate people access to those tests. And I would, I would argue that the entire population should have access to those tests. Now, the testing that I've seen is really built on this idea of nasal or maybe throat swabs uh, w- that requires a healthcare professional to get kind of in your face and and actually dip that swab into your face somewhere and then somehow or another get a reading on it, which is taking, I've heard, as long as, as a week for people to get results. What What is the testing uh, protocol? If you do go get a test, what, what can you expect? So that is really what's out there right now. And there's a number of them at this point, but really what that test is doing is it's trying to get virus material from the part of the body called the nasopharynx or from the throat and then look for viral gene expression, right? So that that's essentially what that is doing. And we know that as a scientific approach, as a technique in a lab, that that can be extraordinarily sensitive and specific because there are only certain genes that these viruses express. The vast majority of them are not genes, or maybe even all of them. I'm I'm not up on my viral uh, genomics, but maybe all of them are genes that you would never find in the human body and quite honestly in other pathogens that commonly infect uh, the human body. So, you know, what these tests are doing via what I would call a slightly medieval approach, because if you've ever had one of these one of these uh, swabs stuck up your nose, all you want to do is is pull your head back. Um, you know, they're they're detecting the virus with fair accuracy. You know, and, and the reason you need a healthcare practitioner present for that is because you really need to be able to assure that the sample is good. But the key thing is you want to minimize the risk to that healthcare professional, right? So ideally, there'd be a test where the healthcare practitioner doesn't have to stick stuff in your nose or mouth that could stand back and watch you, maybe even remotely, as opposed to having to don protective equipment that's already in scarce, rare supply right now um, and put themselves at risk for getting infected by someone who they're testing. And so there is a new test from uh, Rutgers University, from their innovation labs, uh, uh, that, that is using saliva uh, that, is, that is now uh, helping to, I guess you would say, really decrease any 
interaction with somebody who may have been exposed, a medical practitioner or even a patient to a medical practitioner who might have been exposed. So now they can use saliva uh, instead of sticking a swab in your in your nose or your throat, right? Yeah. So so let's get real about that test right now because I, I'm actually very very excited by it um, for a number of reasons. You know, number one is exactly what both of you guys have said, right? PPE is an extraordinarily scarce supply right now. Healthcare practitioners are on the front line. There are a lot of patients out there who may or may not be positive for COVID. And there are a lot of healthcare practitioners out there who may or may not be be um, positive for COVID. So, you know, why not have a test that will give you the information that you need, meaning the sample is good and good enough, if not better than what we have right now, and protect everybody all around the board. And so what Rutgers has done is they've used what we call a PCR-based test. And PCR stands for polymerase chain reaction. Essentially what it is, is a technique to amplify um, either genes or the expressed portion of genes, and which is very sensitive and specific to, um, to this SARS-CoV-2 virus. And in this case, use, it looks at the expression of three genes in that virus, the N gene, the S gene, and the ORF1AB gene. I'm not going to get into what any of those do, but they're specific to the coronavirus that causes COVID-19. And it's able to do this using saliva. And in fact, this test is so sensitive that it's actually more sensitive than a nasopharyngeal swab type approaches. And the FDA is very, very interested in that as well. So what I, I'm going to take your, your very intelligent science and try to make this sensible to me that what you're basically saying is if you spit, if you test spit, I guess this is done in a test tube. If you, if you spit into a test tube and a lab looks at it, it's going to be as accurate as the nasal swab. And it's going to be able more to accurate. determine if more accurate than a nasal swab, and it's going to help you help the lab determine whether or not you are positive, you have the COVID virus, or you are negative, you do not have the COVID virus. That's 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 what this test can do. That's right, and and a and a very very high percentage of the time, it will tell you positive or negative very accurately. If it didn't tell you positive or negative, what else would it tell you? I mean, it could tell you inconclusive, right? That that's what you that's what you don't want, but that's what happens in a very, very, very small minority of cases. Um, you know, and to break that down further, right? We're looking at the expression of three genes, right? And for this particular test, which is the case for other tests that look at multiple genes, you know, a positive result is expression of two or three of these genes. Whereas an inconclusive result is the expression of one of these genes, and a negative result is the expression of none of these genes. So it's it's an unfortunate position to be in, and there are a number of scenarios that that can cause that, but it happens in only about one to two percent of cases. Okay, and so if you if that happened to you, what do you do? Do you get retested? Is that does that mean maybe there was a way that you were half sick and not full sick, or uh, what? What else? What do you do? The scenarios there are, you know, maybe you have the virus, right, but there's not enough of it yet for you to detect it. And that's one scenario where if you wait a couple of days, based on what we know about the the, the course of this virus, then getting retested is, is, is very reasonable. Um, you know, the other option is that, you know, you may have something else that's cross-reacting with this test that doesn't give you, you know, that positive or negative result. So it's it's very reasonable to to retest a couple of days um, or a little bit longer after you've had that initial test in those cases. That's just that's the moving nature of this virus, I guess. There's just so much stuff happening. So, 
how does this test actually get administered? First of all, can you do this is this is done at home? This is done in front of a medical provider. This is done. Where is this test done? So you can do it in either way. And that's the beauty of it, right? Because, it, you know, the best type of test will be ordered by a medical provider, supervised by a medical provider, and then interpreted by a medical provider, right? And with this test, you can do it that way because it's a spit test. So you can be sitting in front of somebody two, three feet away in their PPE um, or not, if you're the healthcare practitioner, and you can spit in the tube and they can watch you and you can watch you fill it to the, to the little black line and watch you close it and hand it back to them. Or you could do it over a video conference, right? I mean, why not? This is one of those situations where I would argue that there's absolutely no difference in watching somebody spit from three feet away versus over a video screen and making sure that that sample is appropriate, it's coming from the right person, and that it's sealed, science sealed and delivered in the way that you want it to be. I mean, it seems to make more sense to me that you would actually want to decrease the risk to any medical professional who has to now spend time doing tests and potentially be in front of a lot of sick people more than even in the in the hospital or in the doctor's offices or the clinics. And and then also we keep hearing about how there's very little um, personal protective equipment, PPE available, and you have to change that PPE every single time you do a test. So if you could do something like this over telemedicine, isn't that the whole point? Isn't Doesn't that simplify the the entire system of being able to, to, to get results without having to endanger people in the process? Absolutely. And that's what's exciting about it, because up until this test was available, there were some at-home tests, but they required people to do these swabs that sometimes are harder to get a good sample from. So it's easier to get an equivocal result where you don't get a positive or negative, you get an unknown result. And they weren't being checked on how that collection was being sampled in real time via telemedicine visit. So this test, number one, it's a saliva test, so it's easier to get a good sample than trying to swab the right place in your nose or the back of your throat on your own. And number two, it's being looked at in real time via telemedicine by a practitioner who can make sure that that sample is being collected correctly. How long does it take for the test, the lab, to actually know the answer? I've heard lots of stories about people that have gotten tests and haven't gotten answers back in days or at all even, which is like shocking to me. So let, let me just talk a little bit about this because this is this is one of these things that, you know, that I, I I actually have a lot of interest in. So, you know, the throughput of a lab is really dependent less on the people in the lab and more on the technology that's available, right? So, you know, the way this type of test works, like I said, it's a PCR-based Based test. So what does that mean? That means that you have to have a machine that can essentially cycle temperatures up and down a certain number of times in order to amplify these genes that we're looking for, right? And so, so that part takes time. But the big part of this, that that's a rate limiting step, is how many of these assays can a lab do in a given amount of time. And it really depends on their technology that they have. So, you know, most of these types of PCR-based assays are based on a little plate that has 96 wells on it, right? That's the most common format. But, you know, there are machines that are available that can expand that four or five fold. And then you, you know, you further expand that by the number of machines. So, you know, the best labs are gonna be turning this around in somewhere between 24 to 72 hours with the best possible technology, you know, and that, and that also depends on how many machines they have. Okay. So, so the, so getting a test, if, if you can get the saliva test and if you can uh, do that from home on a, on a video call, who's the video call with, by the way, when you're doing a video call, who are you, who are you talking to? 
You could be talking to any healthcare practitioner that knows how to make sure the test is being done correctly. So it could be an RN nurse, it could be a nurse practitioner, or it could be a physician. And so they actually are watching you spit in a tube. Is that effectively what's happening here? Yeah, exactly. It's actually a special tube, though. It's a very special tube that the patient would get in the mail that has a little funnel at the top, so it makes it really easy to collect the spit. They spit into this funnel part, and then once they're done collecting enough spit, and that's one thing that the healthcare practitioner is checking to make sure it's not just foam, that it's actually liquid spit that they're collecting up to the level that they need to collect, then all they do is they cap that funnel part, and then they twist it off. And when they twist it off, some preservative goes into that saliva in the bottom of the tube to make sure that it stays in a state that it can be stable for a few days till it gets to the testing facility. And then they just replace it with a regular cap and send it back to the lab. Got it. All right. And, and you know, Jason, I, I think I think it bears a little bit of discussion about why tests like these are better currently than something that you could do at home or, you know, different types of assays. Um, I think this is really important because the market, you know, for this type of testing and other type of testing is going to have a lot of quote unquote at home testing that's going to be touted. But, you know, coming from a scientific background, I think it's really important that people know that a test like this, that really is very sensitive and very specific is going to almost always be way better than something that you can do in your home. And we don't have time to get into all the details of that, but, you know, just, just suffice it to say that the technology and the science that goes into developing one of these things and implementing it is best left in the lab. And there's no comparison for an at-home test and there won't be for a while especially with something as serious as COVID, where people are quite literally dying because of exposure to this to this virus. Not everybody, but a lot of people are, we're seeing the, the death count on the news climb by the day to thousands and thousands of people. Absolutely. And, and listen, I mean, if you told, if you gave me a test that I could take at home and you told me that it was 90 or 85 or 80% sensitive and specific, just for argument's sake, you know, and that test gave me a negative result and I had some symptoms, I would sit there thinking, well, shoot, I mean, am I the guy in which this test failed? You know, I don't want that test. I want this test, the one that we're talking about and the ones that are comparable. All right. So the saliva test or a, or a, or a nasal swab done by a healthcare professional, supervised by a healthcare professional is the, is the only way to really go. That is the effective and, and, and most uh, responsible way to go. Um, all right. So let's, let's cut to the results then. So in the event that you do test uh, positive, really, or negative, what, what is the right next step? Do you immediately need to go to the hospital? Do you, what, what do you do in, in, in this case? So if you test positive, it really depends on your clinical symptoms. But the most important thing to know is you need to self-isolate to minimize spread to anybody around you. That could even be isolating yourself from other people in your home and staying more in your room and limiting the amount of time you spend outside your room so that you minimize the risk, especially to people around you who are in those higher risk groups that are older, have diabetes or overweight. But if you do start to have symptoms, most of those can be managed by taking medications over the counter. Of course, if you have more serious symptoms like chest tightness or shortness of breath, it's really important to check in with your healthcare provider. Generally, unless you're in an emergent, urgent situation, you check in with them first via telemedicine to find out 
what's the next best step and if you need to be seen. But we don't want to overuse the emergency rooms because they're already at capacity in many locations in the country right now. So you really want to check in first with your healthcare practitioner. But it's important to know if you have this because you can self-isolate and minimize the spread. Is the so you could literally treat yourself with you know Tylenol or a cold and flu type drug if you have symptoms? Is that what you're suggesting? Absolutely, the majority of people will have mild symptoms and they can stay at home, rest, take Tylenol to manage their fever, and unless they're getting more serious symptoms, they ride it out. What's the fever temperature that you'd be most worried about? Where is it that you have to say, "All right, it's time." Well, you know, I mean, typically we say if it gets above 101.5 or 102, it's definitely a good idea to check in with your medical provider. It doesn't mean to go in in person, but that's a good time to check in via a telemedicine visit, notify them what's going on. It's not unusual in this kind of uh, second stage of this virus, meaning not at the first few days, but after that for about five days to have fevers that go up even higher into the 102s um, and cause what's called rigors, which is like shaking and shaking chills. That's not unusual. But if you start to get to that point, you definitely should check in with your healthcare practitioner. And, and let's be let's be real about what we have, what we're calling treatment here. You know, uh, the treatment for COVID-19 is supportive, meaning just like you know, just like Dr. Spar said, you know, Tylenol, other medications that will lower your fever, that will try to treat your symptoms. There is no treatment right now that is good enough to really be called a treatment for COVID-19. I mean, forget about what you hear on the news, forget about hydroxychloroquine, chloroquine, remdesivir. You know, th those are potentially promising treatments, quote unquote, and I say that with big air quotes, but none of them have been proven to truly be effective against this virus. So, you know, the, the goal of treatment is to make sure you get through it and then your body heals. And that's even the case for patients who end up in the hospital in the ICU on a ventilator. You know, that is supportive treatment or therapy for this condition. So the reality is that, again, the reason that you think knowing the answers as to whether or not you're positive or negative and knowing how to properly manage your care if you're feeling symptoms or, or you're not tremendously sick is an important part of just being able to social distance and stay away from people who actually, if infected, could have a much, much worse outcome because they have a compromised immune system. The, that's what you're doing in all of this, right? We don't even know who's going to have a much, much, much worse reaction. You know, we just don't. I mean, you know, I, I could I could be positive and have a, you know, have a dry cough for two days and, you know, not know it and bring it home and my wife gets it and she ends up in the ICU. I mean, you know, I, I don't know who's going to do that and nobody does. That's part of the problem here. And that's why testing is so important because, you know, that that is really what lets you plan the course ahead. Just to just maybe one more thought, and and I know Dr. Spar has said this before on another podcast, but there are kind of two different versions. I, I I don't maybe that's the wrong way to say it, but it sort of sounds like it to me is two different versions of people getting sick. There are the people who have compromised immune systems that have that suffer the effects of whatever terrible things that COVID is causing, and then there are people whose immune systems actually attack them, which is why sometimes we're hearing that people that are younger or you know presumably more healthy are having serious issues and complications and maybe even dying. Um, could you maybe just kind of go through that again one more time, Dr. Spar? So this virus is unique in that the initial phase is like many viruses where the body recognizes there's an infection and starts to try and contain that infection and attack it with killer cells and with T cells and eventually with antibodies. But what's unique about this virus is a few days in, for some reason, 
the virus, because it's attacking lung tissue, the body tries to make sure that that lung tissue is as protected as possible. And it, it brings in this very fulminant, this very strong response to try and get rid of the infection. Unfortunately, that response isn't always so elegant. And it not only gets rid of the infection, it brings in all these cells that secrete fluids and are called cytokines, which are these killer cells that are meant to wipe out infection, but also destroy the native lung tissue. And you get this very vigorous response, more than normal to this virus called a cytokine storm, which brings with it a lot of inflammation and therefore a lot of fluid and a lot of damage to the lung tissue. Because when you have fluid in lung tissue, oxygen cannot be transmitted. The lungs can't do their job. And that's what's causing people to need to be on a ventilator, even for two, three weeks with very high proportions of oxygen. They're not able to get oxygen into their bloodstream from their lungs because it's all filled with this fluid from this cytokine storm. So that's why it's important if you start to get suddenly a lot worse to seek medical attention immediately because you could be starting in that process, which can really go from feeling okay, but not terrible to not being able to breathe on your own in a matter of hours. So the key sign here is, is that if you are feeling shortness of breath or you really feel like you can't breathe, this is a go to the hospital moment. Exactly. Okay. Um, I'm going to put a pin in it and end it here. I think the key takeaways for us, though, are that if you can get tested, get tested. A test that doesn't involve face-to-face contact with a medical provider that uses saliva uh, is a is a great option for being able to uh, help get an answer that you may need very quickly to take care of your friends, your family, and stay safe for yourself and keep others safe uh, from you if you are, in fact, sick. And that if you are feeling symptoms that are uh, scary to you, if you feel like there's something not right, that reaching out to a medical practitioner, probably through uh, a telehealth visit, through somebody online, which I imagine is pretty easy to Google if you just need to get some answers. But if you're feeling particularly sick, if you can't breathe, that you don't mess around. You, you, you get yourself to a doctor, you get yourself to a hospital or a clinic immediately for help with the reaction. Exactly. Well put. 100%. Great summary. All right, guys. Well, look, thanks for taking the time. But by doing our parts and flattening the curve, as it said, uh, we, will, we will get through this. Exactly. Stay safe, everybody. Keep it real. Take care, guys. Thanks for listening to another episode of Get It Up. We love to hear from you, our listeners. The best questions are the ones you've been thinking about but haven't asked. So call us. Leave us a message. Maybe your question becomes the next episode. 917-267-7631. That's 917-267-7631. This podcast is for general informational purposes only and does not constitute the practice of medicine, nursing, or other professional healthcare services. No doctor-patient relationship is formed from listening to this podcast. The use of this information and the materials linked to in this podcast are at the user's own risk and are not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment.